Thank you, Dave. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name's Law. Um, David, I met in the gym, uh, Snap Fitness. He said, come on, mate, you come along to Rotary. I said, what's Rotary? So I came once and then went to the, uh, the art gallery. So thanks for having me along, and it's been an eye-opener for me. I've just come back into the country and um, fell in love with Queenstown, so I've stayed. And it's been really lovely getting to know some of you and just meeting you all. So I thought I'd give a snapshot of my life. Um, Dave said, I ain't got to speak, because we were just talking about uh, some of the things that I'd done overseas. So as I said, I've been out for out of New Zealand for uh, 12 years. And um, so yeah, I've had a bit of a life. So I thought I'd just share a couple of things. And it was so nice hearing uh, people share about their professional journeys and their life journeys. And um, so David encouraged me. I said, oh, yeah, come along. And uh, so this is me. Um, in about uh, 2013, I don't know if you know, but there was a, a movie about uh, a guy called Captain Phillips. And it was Captain Richard Phillips who was um, on a ship, the Maersk, Alabama, and it was hijacked by Somali pirates. And he was taken, and they made a movie out of it. And um, what it did, the movie actually highlighted to the commercial world the problem with Somali pirates. Um, and I had been out there... Um, in Yemen, uh, working for a couple of years for uh, private military contractors who would help merchant shipping and oil rigs and drill ships and different maritime uh, operations secure their operations around oil and gas exploration. So as a Kiwi bloke, ex-military, um, I went out there and I was seconded by um, a couple of UK companies and an American company. And living in Yemen was a bit of a challenge um, as they were, well, I'm an infidel, um, a, a non-Muslim. So just working in the country itself uh, presented challenges back at, at that time. And uh, there was a group of ex-military guys that had um, trained in the States. I joined them and we trained with other Kiwi guys and Kiwi sort of, and Aussie guys and they'd pop up and uh, so we trained, I did a bodyguard course, a um, weapons course, and just to upgrade myself, because I hadn't done uh, military work for a, a long time. And then uh, in 2009, I headed out to, to Yemen to operate there, and um, I was traveling uh, from New Zealand to Oman and listening to Captain Phillips' drama unfold on CNN. And then the next day when I boarded my ship, there was the Maersk, Alabama, ne moored next to our ship, and we left to go out exactly where they'd come from. Mm. Um, the difference was we had an armed security team on board, and we could repel any kind of piracy. And back then in um, 2011, <coughs> well, 2005 to 2011, there were 237 attacks on shipping through the Gulf of Aden. So, and a lot of... Um, if a ship got taken, those crews, which were about 20 to 30 men on board a vessel, the average time that they were incarcerated in the, in the port of Mogadishu and held by pirates was 10 months. So their families couldn't see them, their, 
that were, they were terrified for 10 months until companies could work out a ransom deal. And uh, during the, just the year of uh, 2011, the Somali pirates made $146 million for the Somali economy. So, um, but that was yeah. also born out of desperation of the poverty of Somalia. And their fishing rights and their 12 mile limit um, being encroached upon by European fishing and, and different things and toxic waste being dropped there. So the average Somali fisherman would go fishing, but he'd always carry an AK-47. And the typical Somali pirate is, a lot of them are untrained, some of them were highly trained and involved uh, with organized crime who saw an opportunity and came down there and trained them up and then they would take ships. Um, so companies would hire our UK or US company and there'd just be a group of, small group of us on the ground. And I, when I went to Yemen, because it was so hostile towards Westerners being um, present in their country, I'd walk in there, typically with a group of maybe six to ten guys, and I legally worked for Yemen Catering International. <laughs> and uh, so we'd walk in, and usually it would be a big group of burly boys, and it's like, man, those cakes must be heavy. <laughs> so, and then um, typically we'd, we'd get a contract, and we'd uh, travel across um, Yemen to a, a very small port, and work with the, the Yemeni Coast Guard and they'd, we'd go out to the 12 mile limit, get on an international ship, taking weapons with us, protect them through the most uh, dangerous part of the Gulf of Aden and then get off again and come back into Yemen and make our way back to the capital. While I was there in Yemen, it was an exciting place to work. Um, I got caught in the south when, because when I worked there, it was the Al-Qaeda capital of the world. So if you were a foreigner, you um, some foreigners who were not security aware were killed, um, kidnapped, killed. Uh, the German Saudi Hospital, which is a beautiful um, institution there in Sana'a, in the capital of, of Yemen, where you get volunteer service abroad and different um, doctors and nurses coming in to volunteer their services because Yemen's so poor. But some of those doctors and nurses, they get killed because they're foreigners. So they're really taking you know massive risks and you try and help some people, but through the heaviness of what they believe in their indoctrination, yeah, you you, um, you run across these things. And uh, I I liked working there, I liked the people, even though it was, it was highly dangerous. And we got to know a few locals, but if we were, um, I had an Arab boy, Nabil, who drove our vehicle, and um, whenever we were in the vehicle, he would drive like the wind, almost like, I've got some infidels on board, I'm getting you boys to A to B, get them out of there. So it, it presented a few um, tense moments. I was in the south and Al-Qaeda had blown up an ammunition factory, killed 76 locals, so the army locked down the entire country. And I was meant to catch a ship and um, I was working for an American company. Uh, we stayed in this dingy little hotel. It was me and one other guy and he was from the UK. And he was very tall and very noticeable. And we, um, the, camp, the contract was cancelled because the country was locked down, no ships, no airports were open, nothing. So we escaped and evaded for about seven days, just ducking and diving, uh, making sure that we didn't get kidnapped and uh, made our way back to the capital. Um, for me, I kind of enjoyed that stuff. <laughs> <laughs>
when you're with one guy, he's very tall, he's six foot five, very, very um, white, and I'm a little bit brown, so until I open my mouth, I'm kind of almost Arab, you know? So, <laughs> we're standing on top of a building, a broken building, looking out to the desert in this very small town, and he goes, well, if they come for us, We'll run up into the desert, then we'll go up there, round back behind the police station and say, bro, I'm not ending up on YouTube with you. <laughs> on your own. He goes, well, don't be like that. You know? So I used to have a lot of fun and I used to find that joking as I used to do in the army and intense moments like that, you had to think your way clearly through what you were actually going to do. But we got out of there a week later and got back to the capital. And um, yeah. Yemen, I enjoyed working in. So I did the private military contracting there for a couple of years, and then I worked in Africa and trained Kenyan Marines, uh, Tanzanian Marines, Mozambique Marines, just trained them uh, about maritime security, sharpened their skills, and met a lot of different people, worked with um, spooks or ex-spies who would help our company get the contracts from other companies. Then, out, then their companies with their spies would get our company kicked out of that country. So business was business, but sometimes it was really quite dirty. And it was an eye-opener to me to see how companies employed ex-spies and that to do some work where they'd work in the government and get a company that's going for the same contract as you kicked out. Yeah. Um, Yemen is, um, I loved it there, and those people are, they're very poor, and I know that they have their belief system, but what I love about Rotary since I've been here, hearing your stories and hearing what you are involved in in the community, that's exactly what countries like that need, is that kind of attitude. But it's very hard, like, um, trying to instill that into people, but you've got to start small and just start with one. And um, so, yeah, coming along, it thrills me because I've been to countries where they're absolutely wrecked. And you, you think about the mentality of the people and you think, how are you going to get out of this? How are you going to actually build your society rather than tear it down or, or fight each other? Um, mm, yeah, so it, it thrills me when I, I hear what you guys are doing in the community. and. It's, it's, it's what makes our Western world, you know, you travel through countries that are ripped and wrecked and, and people who are in misery, then you see groups like yourselves and it just makes such an awesome difference. But that's what countries where some of the darkest people I've worked with are people who have been in civil war. You know, like the Mozambique Marines where they had a civil war that lasted for 22 years but they killed a million of each other in that short space of time. And the amount of orphans in the country is just diabolical and so a lot of the infrastructure and outside um, foreign groups that tried to help they were pushed away by the government they were stopped by the government you know it's been very difficult but you see that where people care where people are willing to invest in their local community and others it's huge it's a huge attitude to have and you see there's so much um, hatred and bigotry and things like that 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 can just tear a country right apart. Um, yeah, as I was saying with Yemen, yeah, I had great hopes of it, but they plunged back into civil war. And at that time, um, I was there when the Arab Spring broke out. 
So that's when our company decided to pull out because you know, the, uh, the office manager, he was um, bringing me and another guy when we were on contract saying, oh, I can hear gunfire outside. We said, why are you still there? You know, it's time to get on a plane and get out. But some countries are like that. It's, it's, um, it's so volatile and people think that they can solve everything with a gun. Now Yemen is a country of 24 million people and there are 72 million AK-47s in that country. Mm. Jesus. Yeah. It's a weapon of choice, ceremonial and otherwise. So a lot of guns. And so when you come into the capital, instead of, they have big billboards and you think, oh, you advertise a cell phone on there, but you see an AK-47 with a big red circle and no guns underneath. So it's, yeah. Some people complain that America's got a gun culture. That's a gun culture right there. Um, yeah, and it's, yeah, one of the funny things that happened there was the CIA was asking me for directions in Yemen. And you think, okay, must be a rough country when the CIA asks you for directions. Um, I, I prevented a hijacking on a ship that I was on and it's one of those moments in life when you look into another man's eyes and you're that close and you know that if one of you fires your weapon, one of you's going to die. Um, and that was a surreal moment for me. It was just, it was incredible. And I, um, under the international use of force for the UN, we can't fire first. So I was waiting for him to fire, but for some reason he didn't. So, yeah, I'm still here because he chose not to fire. Um, but that, that was the job, and I enjoyed protecting people and have done it throughout, um, yeah, different parts of Africa. Um, how did I end up getting there? Well, as I said, my start was with the New Zealand Army, and I was very young. Um, New Zealand used to have cadets, so I joined at 16, and then was shipped out very quickly to Singapore for a couple of years jungle warfare training, and I absolutely loved the Army. And it was a great challenge for me, and um, I wish some of my mates had joined because they became misfits with drugs and other things, but the army quickly would sort out a young man, you know, so I absolutely enjoyed it. Um, when I was in the jungle, though, that really did change my life. Um, I was 20, and I'd been doing jungle warfare for about a year, and I'm one of the... Um, probably a small group of people in the world that has had uh, a great electrifying experience. Um, I was working with three other guys patrolling through the jungle as we used to do and we were in monsoon season in Malaysia which meant it buckets down at three in the afternoon and it's usually associated with lightning and I had gone out with the communications team to help them find another unit and during that time um, it started raining and my two offsiders who were communications specialists, they weren't a grunt like me, just, you know, by your infantry, you don't know much, you just grunt along. And um, they left me to my reconnaissance and I couldn't find the team that we were looking for. I came back to the spot where they were sitting and they, they corporal had said to me, oh look, if you're not back in half an hour, we're going back to camp. So they trundled off and I came back. Uh, it's always... You know, the jungle's great there, 33 degrees every day, and it's 100% humidity. So it's a pretty harsh environment. Um, I was totally saturated when the rain started falling because it just buckets down. And I got up, um, grabbed my M16, put my kit back on because I'd had a little rest, and I started heading down the track. 
as I headed down the track, um, the, there was lightning around and the trees were blowing. And then all of a sudden, everything just lit up and went completely white. And I, I felt this ear piercing just pressure on my ears and, and a crack of a sound like it was just so incredible. And then suddenly my M16 had disappeared and I'd left the ground. I was flying through the air. And I was, as I flew through the air, I thought, well, okay, I'm flying. Um, but I could hear screaming. I thought, wow, that's weird. I can hear screaming and I'm flying. Um, and I was flying through the air and I thought, well, the ground's coming up. Why is the ground coming up? And you know when you lose your balance and your hands automatically come up like that? I thought, my hands really should be coming up because that, that ground is about to meet my face. And I, I couldn't lift my arms, they just wouldn't come up. And I smashed into the ground and I felt like I was so filled with something that half of me was going to go left, half of me was going to go right. And then suddenly it just disappeared. And I was lying there face down in the mud and it dawned on me, I'd just been struck by lightning, lifted up, thrown through the air, <coughs> ragdolled, and then smashed into the ground. So I thought, okay, fear kicked in, adrenaline kicked in, and I thought, I gotta get out of here. So I tried to get up, but if you get struck by lightning, your whole nervous system was knocked out. So I was like jellying, half of me was, I was trying to turn around, go get my M16, because a soldier can't leave without your weapon. So I spun around and I was just crashing all over the place grabbed my M16 and I was so afraid of being hitting it, hit by lightning again because the storm was still raging around that I bush crashed straight down the hill that it was on and I fell left, fell right start, and my body started to catch up. I regained my uh, sense of coordination, crashed down through the bottom, went through a swamp at the bottom and into a clearing. There was a hill on the other side. As I um, got to the clearing, I yeah, I, I thought, man, I feel really tired. So I thought I'll sit down, which is very untactical. I'm not supposed to do that. I can already hear my sergeant bleeding my ear. What do you think you're doing? You know, with a few expletives. And um, then I, I sat down and I thought, man, I feel really tired. So I lay down. And then I had a heart attack. Um, and there's about 15 Malaysian soldiers, 10 or 15, or 10 in the last 15 years or so, that have been killed by lightning. So it's about 500 people in that region around Singapore, Malaysia get killed by lightning every year. So I, I had a heart attack and I thought, I, was, um, I didn't know what a heart attack was, but uh, being 20, and here I was like, my heart sped up, and I just hear this like this in my chest and then the massive pain and I arched off the ground and I was going, oh, so this is what it's like to die of a heart attack. And I had that and then I just laid there and uh, after that, I had a remarkable kind of spiritual experience, which was even worse. Because I've never been grown up with anything like that in my life. And it's like for me, somehow, after the heart attack, that reality erupted. That's the only way I can explain it. So I had that, and I thought, wow, what's this? And it, I didn't go into a white tunnel you know, or anything like that. But definitely reality with the five senses and everything, as I understood it to that point, somehow shattered, ripped. And I got to see a glimpse behind. And I thought I was gonna die, but I didn't. And after that, I just laid there, gathered myself, and I heard a Land Rover go up the track that was up the hill. 
and it was a CQ, a staff sergeant who was resupplying another unit. And I was so shattered, and I, and I, and I thought, after this spiritual experience, I, I freaked out. So I leapt up off the ground from the lying position to the standing position and saying, I'm not changed, I'm not changed. And I thought, you're talking to yourself in the middle of the jungle, it's time to move on. <laughs> so I left there and I went up the track and yeah, caught a ride back. And I went to the field hospital and the field hospital guys checked me out and the other guy just put the torch in the eyes and he goes, wow, you're lucky to be alive. And I thought, what are you talking about? It's just a lightning strike and I'm alive. <laughs> but the next day I had a head like concrete. I had the worst... Um, hang I've ever had in my life and I realised that you know the lightning had, had, had an experience so I had a spiritual experience and then my, my um, life of extremes I call it I went from the military to that and then I became a minister, a Baptist minister um, about probably three or four years after that experience returned home to New Zealand, went to seminary um, and just started working um, in, in church and working with youth and some of them at risk and some of them really naughty like I was so I got on well with them and uh, yeah and then after that 10 years being extreme as I was I enjoyed that work and working in churches so I went all, all across the world visiting different churches and whatnot. Time? So I've been as extreme as I was because I enjoyed um, surviving extreme events. Um, I thought, okay, what's this church world? Because I had never been brought up like that and didn't even know what a church uh, was. And when I was in the army, we had a chaplain. I thought, why do they pay that guy? What's that about? <laughs> and um, I thought, what a waste of the government's money. Anyway, that was about us totally spiritually brain dead and didn't understand any of, any of that world. So I, I got to travel across the world and do mission work and you know, visit some of the big black churches in the States that I'd seen in the movies and I thought, oh, I wonder what it's really like. Went in there, yeah, oh, okay. It is like that. You know? And um, yeah, so I had quite the experience. And then um, after working in that for 20 years and working with families and whatnot, then, I decided that I needed a change and that's when I um, got in touch with some old mates and ex-special forces and whatnot and went and gave myself a thrill by doing a bodyguard course and going out into the world where I absolutely love the world and have always loved travelling and meeting new people and different people and so yeah went across there and um, I tried to help wherever I was and it's beautiful meeting people, even in the most worst conditions and in the worst countries where, well, when I say worst countries, the worst situations in countries that are really, really struggling. But just give them the encouragement where they want to do good in their communities. They don't want to look like that. But it all starts in here. It doesn't always start with money, but it starts inside. So, yeah, I got the privilege of... Um, meeting people and just encouraging them. And, and encouragement has always gone a long way, i found, and just motivating people to um, do what they can in their own communities. Uh, so just to run through a little, uh, when I say I've had extremes, I got struck by lightning, right? Ended up being a minister, which 
probably made my grandmother very happy. Um, my mum was horrified. Well, not horrified, but her claim for fame is she writes erotic novels. I said, it's porn, mum. It's porn. <laughs> anyway, me and my brother give her grief. But she's a bit of a wild old girl. Anyway, while I was there in Malaysia, I ran into a tiger. Um, face to face, it didn't eat me, which is great. Um, and I couldn't believe it because I ran into it, it jumped up, and I thought, okay, what's going to happen here? And I was in a bush lane where the the, um, the bushman had cut the all the trees back from the track 200 meters, so there, I, there's no way I was going to beat the tiger to the trees or anything like that. So, but it looked at me, and I thought, okay, I'll just stand still. And all I could hear in my mind was that stupid old New Zealand. Advert, tiger, tiger, jelly beat for dinner. And I was like, I'm a jelly Excuse me. So I got away with that. I was absolutely petrified. I was standing there like just waiting and thinking, okay, it's your move because I'm not as fast as you. And slowly I just backed away because the tiger actually sat back down. It was basking in the sun. I didn't see it. And um, so when it sat down, I just backed away, backed away until I was far enough away. And I thought, right. It's time to sprint, boy. So I ran. It's really difficult running like this. Um, and I thought, yeah, I got away with that. And then uh, several months later, it was at night time. I was on top of a mountain in Malaysia, and a black panther came out. And I was playing with a torch, and I didn't know that it was there. And I saw, like, I flipped onto this thicket, and there was this big glowworm. And I went, because I had one other mate with me on this mountain. And I said, look! His name was Shocker, this is his nickname. Shocker, look at this glowworm. And I flipped the torch and then there was another one. There's two! And then I went, oh, no. And this big black panther just came out very casually, waltzed up to myself. Shocker came running out to have a look and just waltzed across in front of us. And we were there with no weapons because the last crew that was there had shot up the hut. Good Kiwi boys had used the M16s to shoot the roof. So our lieutenant said, no weapons up there, boys. There's only so much roof left. So, yeah. So we were there with no weapons. We couldn't protect ourselves. And this thing just waltzed in front of us. And then we had a little generator there. It was about 30 feet from the hut. So it was like, okay, who's going to have to turn that off tonight? Um, I got poisoned. So that was part of the reason that I left the army. I got some kind of multiple toxicity that... I had seven or eight doctors, 22 pills a day, decompression chambers, uh, vitamin C injected into me, and took three years to come right. So, yeah, I don't know what the jungle gave me, but doctors didn't know. And I, I found one sympathetic doctor who said to me more than, oh, it's psychosomatic, boy. So, yeah, but when your muscles fibrillate and you can't hold your food down, you know it's not in your brain, you know. So, yeah, it took three years to come right, and then I became became a posty. That was my first job after recovering from being poisoned. Um, survived three major car accidents, a bad parachute landing. I, when I was in, in Yemen, I fell off the side of a ship. It's good. But there was a Coast Guard cutter there, so I landed on that. Um, the boys were not impressed. You know, good Kiwi guys, it's like we're transferring from one ship to another. That's always really, really dangerous, and the seas were massively high. So when I fell, because I was trusting my ex-Special Forces mate, he, the, the, the cutter was heaving so hard, he, he'd suddenly pop up and then he'd disappear and he'd say to me, I'll tell you when. 
I should never have trusted him. Anyway, <laughs> he told me where did I was half a second too late, so I just fell and followed the, the cutter down and then banged in the bottom. And all the boys up top were like, oh, make us look bad, man. <laughs> and I was just like, I'm all right, boys. I'm all right. So, yeah, I can always count on uh, military boys are pretty harsh. Don't like me being made look bad. Um, and also, too, while I was military contracting, I have to thank the uh, coast of South Africa. I got thrown, I was on a ship, and the ship was 100 metres long. We went out in calm seas to test some exploration gear for an um, upcoming uh, gas exploration. They boarded in South Africa, fitted it, we'd gone out 70 miles off uh, Durban, and we woke up in the morning and the seas were mountainous. The ship was 100 metres long, but it got hit by a road wave, and the bridge was very high, it was 30 metres from the waterline, but the wave went over top. Oh. And um, our sandbag position for um, firing our weapons was right on top of the bridge, and there, it was absolutely smashed. There was sand all over the bridge. Um, all the crew was seasick, very fortunately. I've never been seasick, so that was seasick, and um, I decided that I'd go to the gym and clean the gym up because there was weights and things all over the gym. It was quite a big ship. Picture theatre next door. While I was in there, one of the junior officers decided to turn the ship in the trough, not tell anybody. And I got picked up, did a somersault from one side of the room, I was in the air, did a somersault, and hit the door with all the spin bikes up against the door. And I didn't realise my back had been punctured. So two guys who were in the picture theatre heard what was going on. They came and they pushed the door open and we put the bikes back. And then a bloke behind me goes, Bro, bro, you, you, you got two holes in your back. So I had to rush off to the doctor. But the doctor was sitting up top, good friend of mine, sitting on the bridge, holding on to the seat as the ship surfed down these big waves. And the first thing I said to him, he was white knuckling because he was really afraid. He was like quite ass and white. I said, wow, we could die. And he goes, shut up, shut up, shut up. I said, now can you fix two holes in my back? Anyway. Um, he was a good guy. <laughs> Most dangerous woman I've dated was my ex-CIA girlfriend. <laughs> Her answer to everything was, oh, I just had someone pay to take him out. <laughs> oh, someone had dumped her. So I, said, <laughs> I was a bit nervous after I dumped her. If a, if a van with no doors, you know, suddenly pulled up on the curb and go, oh, I didn't want a black bag over my head and disappeared. But uh, she used to be a drone manager for all the drones in Afghanistan for the Special Forces. So she was an interesting girl, very qualified and whatnot. But yeah, I survived dumping her. It's probably one of the um, Thanks for having me. One of the things that I, I have as a life lesson for all the things that I've been through is the obvious love versus hate that you see in the world. And to me, it doesn't matter the religion, the background, the persuasion or whatever, but where love prevails, those are countries where people build. Where hate prevails, that's where they tear each other apart. And wherever I've gone, I, thought, I just want to encourage people, if we love one another, if we're prepared to be unselfish and invest in each other, then we have a better society. And so coming home to New Zealand, is you know, breath of fresh air, I love it. I don't have to sleep with a gun under my bed. It's amazing. <laughs>
No. And they should live in Auckland right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Auckland's <laughs> sus. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah it's, I, I'm plonked back in New Zealand and I'm just figuring out what I'm, what I'm going to do after I've had a recreative rest. So, thanks so much for listening and um, thanks for having me. Oh, for questions? Sorry. Sorry, class. Can I ask what the food was like in Yemen? The food? Yeah. Uh, I know it's a bizarre question. But... No, a lot of rice and meat. Yeah. yeah. Meat and rice. <laughs> <laughs> we, we had fairly. Um, you could never go out to the super. We used to go to the supermarket in twos on dusk. So that you, it was harder to identify you. So we didn't really go out to do any of the shopping, so to speak. We just went and got personal stuff. But the food was mainly that. Did, did the pirates know that the ships were defended and a pick on them? Or did, did they have intelligence that said like you were on board, so they were less likely to to try and attack them, or was yeah, it just random? No, it, they they were random. There were three occasions where pirates, and this is our dumb. They can be, all right. They they tried to hijack navy ships, navy warfare vessels. <laughs> you know, you come in blazing, it's like, oh, okay, there's a big gun. <laughs> but some of them were highly organised and highly trained by, as I said, organised crime. Yeah, because you get five million for a ship and a crew on average. Lightning hurts. <laughs> yeah. So, did your mum sell the books in the bookstore? <laughs> Amazon, Amazon. 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 Uh, she calls it's called Regency Romance or something. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. You Won't a, change your life, I don't think. <laughs> are, you, are you still a religious minister? Are you still in the religion? Uh, no, no. I, like I, I'm not a minister, but yeah, I have my faith, and I, I found that incredibly helpful through a lot of the trauma, and also a lot of the trauma to help my mates who have PTSD uh, and have gone through some incredibly difficult moments, dark moments. Um, probably. One of the hardest things is seeing young soldiers come out of Afghanistan who don't know how to handle, like I had a mate who shot kids, because he had to make a choice. Do I shoot these kids? And the kids were calling in fire missions on their cell phones to kill his friends. So he had to make, and these kids were about 11 or 12. And so this guy's 25, and every time we stopped on a contract, he would get blind drunk until I just counseled him. I said, that's... I said, we're, we're countries where we don't use children for war, but you're in a country where they do. And I said, you have to just make peace with the decision that you make. But it's very difficult. Um, I can say that, and I encourage him. I spent a couple of months with him. But yeah, it's a lot of guys are just messed up by what they see. So I've, I've tried to use my faith and other guys too who are ex-military or myself to help boys that... Because I have a lot of mates, they're just shattered. They, they have lives that you look at them and it's, it's sad. But you try to help who you can. Yep. 
you said you were 20 when you went to Singapore. Yeah. But when I was 20, I went to Outward Bound School. And when we came out of that, I thought we were pretty damn tough. But have, you ever, <laughs> have you ever thought of going there and being an instructor? Uh, I'd, I'd like to do something like that. Um, perhaps, you know, have a Navy SEALs yes. missionaries type thing. Because there, there's so much work to do in countries that, you know, I, I'm very fond of Nepal and different places throughout Asia, but, um, and, and the Middle East. But yeah, I, I've had friends, it's cost them their lives when they've gone into communities to help. So, yeah, and, and when I was young, I found that pretty difficult, but I realised if you're going to do good, sometimes it costs you the ultimate price, but it's still worth it if you're trying to help those people. Go home for a wine after all that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you.